0: This talk was given by Michelle Sege-Spark at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sege is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, this seems to be the way we introduce talks now because we're so many. Um, my name is Sege. I'm a lay senior. Lay seniors wear white robes. Most, p- some people on Zoom don't know that. Hello, Zoom. Um, so welcome. Um, as part of our training as seniors, we're asked to give talks by our teacher, Thank You Shugan. And um, so here we are. Uh, I haven't been here for a while as far as giving a talk. Uh, I think it's been about three years. Um, I'm having trouble reading and writing, but still I'm studying the Dharma. And um, my condition is such that my sight... which um, has been a um, difficult issue for me. Limited, off and on throughout my life is getting worse. Um, So that's my condition. I can't change that. I can do the best I can with it. And I can't change my environment. The lighting here is not very good for me. And it makes me feel very unsafe. And so that's why There's now a note to all you bodhisattvas to help me by watching out for me and being mindful. So we can't change our conditions. We can't change our environment. We can work with our attitude, so to speak. And usually what we're working with is not our joy, because we love that are difficult, difficult emotions about our conditions. The Buddha taught the story about this man who was pierced by an arrow, and the arrow went in, and he was mortally wounded. And then the second arrow went in because he started to question, well, who shot me, and how do I know you've got the answer, the medicine, how can you, I don't know who you are, I mean, why are you pulling this out, you know, maybe, blah, 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 and he was angry, and upset, so the Buddha said that the second arrow went deeper, deeper, and that is the arrow that's unnecessary. So I've been very interested in what study is, and interesting, I'm making it, moving from difficult emotions, maybe, to study, but they are entirely related. Dogen says, to realize the self is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. We all know this. uh, Most of us have heard this (coughs) phrasing, but it's really a shorthand. It's like a shorthand how-to on WikiHow. You actually have to go through the process. And that study of the self is much, much more than forgetting the self. We actually have to prepare ourselves to forget the self in some ways. And that's why we come to session, and we have practices and study of Dharma teachings. It's interesting because koans are our lore, in the Zen tradition. And again, they're like shorthand stories. You have to impute that the person asking a question and the answer that he, he, because it's usually a he, is given is shorthand for a long process. We have to impute that there's a lot of distress sometimes in those questions. There's emotional entanglements and attachments and all manner of stuff. And then one of the reasons I think that there's so much shorthand in there is because they're meant for us to actually help us look at ourselves and not to do any imputing. (laughs) Although that's kind of fun. So these teachings, whenever we read a teaching, I mean, it seems obvious, but it's always about you. Can you relate to that? How do you relate to that? So bear with me as I go through this, because as I said, it's a little harder for me to be as fluid as I'd like. So this idea of study and contemplation It's not often mentioned in Zen. Zen is all about seeing directly, knowing directly. And we make assumptions about that, but I think it's actually in our teachings a lot. We just sort of pass by and want that magic. See directly, it's going to cure everything. There's a description of the path that includes something about contemplation by... Chokidragpa, on hearing the dharma, wisdom comes. So just even hearing it, it's like an aha moment for us. You recognize disturbing emotions when you hear the dharma, because life is suffering. The Buddha taught that the first gross, what they call gross major suffering, is sickness, disease, and death. We cannot escape it. And we all have hardships, whether it's in that category or not. We have hardships that we must accept. And upon wisdom of reflection, you overcome the disturbing emotions temporarily. So we take the teachings in, we hear them, kind of work with them. And that's so important because it'll stand us in good stead when we're in difficulty. And finally, he says, through meditative wisdom, the enemy of disturbing emotions is conquered completely. So again, that's direct seeing, long years of practice. Then through the wisdom of discriminating awareness. You know inexpressible and conceivable reality. Well, I'd personally like to skip over and get to that first, please. (laughs) Again, this is a pithy description of a long path. So we need to investigate what our path, where we are, where we are right now. I'm interested in that, he says, reflecting, in reflecting, the overcome negative emotions. And then he says, temporarily. In the old days, um, when I first got here, of course, Daido Roshi used to say, it's direct pointing to the human mind outside of words and letters. And for me, that was a relief. Personally, I was very caught up in a lot of analytic thinking about myself. Didn't really help all that much. It helped someone. And yet, that's not enough. That is not enough. We need to be able to bring in these truths into our experience as we're happening, as it's happening to us, as we're engaging in it. So in this sense, how do we study our strong emotions while they're happening, and study using the Dharma teachings? So I'd like to kind of look at that a little bit. And bear with me if there's too much analysis, because I think it might be just helpful. So it's a little ironic for me that I love so much studying and um, can't read that well. So I have to do a different form of study which I suggest to you. I have been helping to facilitate a Sangha group practice that is engaged in text study, and it's very helpful to know we, we don't study Dharma the same way we do in school. There is a difference, and I've tried to use my Sumi Roshi's um, inspired words to guide us in uh, the group. Um, and just to let you know, the the way it happens in the group is we do zaz- period of zazan shorter, short. We're on Zoom, so everybody's on Zoom. And then if something's happening, training or anything wise, bring that up a little. Um, then we pick up the text. And we read it out loud very, very slowly. And we stop, and everybody gets to take it in, and respond, and listen deeply. So we help each other. And it's that listening to each other that really helps. It's like that first arrow. It really brings it forward. Anyway, Maizumi uh, suggests that we do... I'm not going to do the whole quote. There's two two parts to this. One is a poem, which I will read, because I'm a, uh, more of a gestalt-type person, poetry reaches that. The other one is more didactic and directional. So here's the poem. And this is the intro to the Blue Cliff Record, which is a daunting undertaking of a collection of koans. He says, or he's quoting, boundless wind and moon, the eye within eyes, inexhaustible heaven and earth, the light beyond light, the willow dark, the flowers bright, 10,000 houses, knock on any door. There's one who will respond. That's who. I've added that's who. OK. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, um, there's all forms of study, and he kind of names a bunch of stuff. And he's saying that this kind of study is reality. He's calling it reading, reality reading. And he doesn't say what that is exactly. But he does say, where you yourself become the text, and in so doing, all the ancient Buddhas Stand revealed as your very life right here in this time and place. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Awesome in the true sense, right? That we actually are the Buddhas as we're reading the text. So we do reflect on teachings that we hear. Um, We do think about the liturgy, We do study the koan as hard as we possibly can, take it very in. And it takes a long time um, for us to recognize our process, our own personal experience in relationship to the thing that we're holding and viewing as a teaching. Because we're looking at it as an external thing, and then we're having relationships to that. It takes a long time for us to actually know who we are in that relationship. We might have a lot of strong feelings. I'm gonna talk about how to use this study to reflect on strong feelings in in a few minutes because that's really, I think, where people get most hung up. But I just wanted to say that um, there's a lot of other subtleties there that we you know, the feeling, if strong enough, overpowers everything else. Can't see the Dharma, can't see, you know, other things. So, um, and all our practices that we do are aimed to turn us towards the Dharma, towards the truth of things, so that we finally, like a little perfume in the air. It's in, infusing us with, with this Uh, Perhaps we'll realize it in chanting together or bowing, maybe going into doksan and bowing. Maybe it's a piece of liturgy. All these things are there to just turn us gently towards so that we're steeped like a a good black tea bag. (laughs) And contemplation is actually in our zazen instructions, but um, slightly. So we say... uh, you are given a practice of uh, developing calm, abiding with the breath by concentration on counting the breath and focusing on the breath. And when a thought arises, see the thought, let it go in quotes, and come back to your practice. And there's great wisdom in that. We're creating equanimity just by allowing all thoughts to be equal, and that we can have the power of setting them aside and come back to our practice. But this um, actual seeing the thought is a form of reflection, no matter how brief. And it is worthy of deeper contemplation and in session, I think it's inevitable that we go there, that we go there, it happens. We always have the choice of letting go if we can, whatever that means. And it means different things to different people. I can tell you that for me it meant um, more like uh, cutting off. Just cutting it off. Don't, don't, don't think about it, just cut it off and go back. It's like a real marsh, mar, martinet, martinet coming back. Um, other people have different ways They might circumnavigate the thought, the feeling, and then, uh, okay, put it flat, you know, when they can. So there's different ways. But we're um, a developing and observing person, a person of the Dharma who's observing reality and how we make feelings happen. And... I use this image like holding up this jewel that has many, many, many facets. And as we turn it, we can get even more fascinated. Facets fascinated, but you know, it has something to show us. There's nothing wrong with that. It actually can help us a lot. But we need to understand the basic truth of these thoughts as impermanent, empty of existing self, and dependently arising among everything else. And that's the soup of the perfume. That's the perfume we're in. (laughs) That didn't make much sense, but anyway. So um, one of the people we studied in this group over the last three years was Ajahn Chah. He talked about developing a witness within yourself. Are we thinking rightly or not? And even if if it's right, do we know how to let go of rightness or are we still clinging to it? He used to say about everything, it's not sure, it's uncertain, everything. That was his mantra to help him abide in this empty state while having discriminating and maybe emotional thoughts. You must contemplate until you reach the point where you let go, until you reach the point where there isn't anything left, where there is neither good nor bad, you throw it all off. This means you throw out everything. If it's all gone, then there's no remainder. So again, that might be hearkening back to choky, dry pose, beautiful, um, Um, well, if I find it, (laughs) I'll find it later, I think. (laughs) Inexpressible, inconceivable reality, I think that's what he said. He also spoke about this uncertain, everything's uncertain. We shouldn't believe everything we think. That's a bumper sticker, I think. But um, he talks about it as a right view, as part of the path, the Eightfold Noble Path is right view. So orienting ourselves continuously towards the Dharma. Therefore, the Buddha and noble ones don't hold fast to anything, to the thoughts, to the right view, to anything. They hold, but not fast. They don't let that holding become an identity. The holding which doesn't lead to becoming is that which isn't tainted with desire without seeking to become this or that, they're simply the practice itself. Just know yourself, this is your witness. So they, they hold, but not fast, like that jewel I was mentioning. We are, we are considering it, we are picturing it, we are having thoughts about it, but we don't hold fast. It's when we get into trouble with our emotions, are afflictive, what we call more destructive emotions. not, not The good ones are probably okay. <laughs> so it does not lead to something becoming a nice fixed identity. <clears throat> a lot of our teaching are directly saying this. Um, and I just want to mention this word in here. This is... Um, it doesn't lead to becoming, is that which isn't tainted with desire. And that word tainted is a word um, that the Theravadins talk about um, desires as impurities, as defilements, as taints. That is not how the Mahayana views, which is even, it's more, it's more arduous in a way. And it's also more inclusive in a way. So for instance, we look at a teaching like the Gatha on, in oriyoki that we chanted at lunch, may we exist in muddy water with purity like a lotus. Thus we bow to Buddha. So these words bring together what Maizumi was suggesting, which is a picture a gestalt, you could see this lotus, it's gorgeous, and its roots are in muddy water. That's how it survives, that's how it lives, that's how it thrives, and we bow to Buddha because that is an incredible teaching. So this purity, for, (laughs) we think about water, water is even used in some of our practices as a pure, aspersion, as purification. It's an element. We think of water as pure. Over here, it's muddy. How can that be pure? How can the purity of the lotus and the muddiness of the water exist together? And not only that, they need each other. They're dependent on each other. They can't exist without each other. This is Mahayana. Not only that, the opposites of pure and impure are completely one thing. It's delusional, delusional to think that they're separate. I just want to mention, we, I want to mention the idea of pictures. Uh, some of us use descriptions and long descriptions in our mind that are hooked to emotional things. And some of us, for me, I'm very picture-oriented, so I actually see things when people describe things. I see the picture. So this is an aspect of our minds that we should be familiar with because it will come into being. It will come into play when we have um, things that we're struggling with. The last... we, we spent a year also on reading uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. This book is very slim. It's about 150 pages. It took us a year to get through it for good reason. For good reason. It is, I hadn't read it in years. It was one of the first books I read when I showed up here. It was practically the only book around At that time, and um, one of our group members said, Oh, we should read this book. I read it every night before I go go to bed. And this is someone who's been practicing a long time. I thought, Oh, I got to take a look. So he says, Now we're going to Zazen. Okay. So the purpose in Zazen is to see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. Exactly what Ajahn Chah says. That is, to see everything in its widest sense. It appears as if something comes from outside your mind, but actually it is only the waves of your mind. Don't be bothered by the waves. Gradually, they will become calmer and calmer. So that's Zen advice. Good advice. Uh, Not always possible. But outside your mind, that's interesting. So he's saying, there's nothing coming from outside. You mean I'm not actually reacting to something outside? And we don't believe it, really. We really don't, especially when we get upset. So we are conditioned to look outside rather than inside. And when we get upset with that outside, we should just turn it around and start to feel what we're feeling and so forth. He's nicely describing zazens as waves in the ocean, the, the attachments, the upsets, desire aversion. And the prescript is to let all go as it goes. You know, don't obstruct it. Don't resist it. It's a wave. What are you going to do? Well, you could surf it, I guess. <laughs> but just um, recognize that it is a wave that has a beginning and it has its life, and we don't need to perpetuate that wave or obstruct it. He goes on, So the essence of your mind is pure. Again, here's that allusion to purity. It is just like clear water, pure and mud here, with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. To speak of waves apart from water or water apart from waves is a delusion. So if we consider waves thoughts or feelings or storylines or it's not separate from the great ocean, <coughs> the Buddha nature that we have. Actually, this, this whole passage sounds really familiar and sounds just like Dogen. Could, I couldn't find it but I think it is. Again, we have this view of everything arising together. The water can't be, the the ocean can't be separate from the waves. The waves can't be separate from the ocean. They have discriminating aspects or appearances, but they're not separate. So what happens when stuff appears to come from outside your mind? Is it a wave? Is it the uh, is it the energy is it are you just your reactions your reactions are appearing in relationship and dependent on everything else and there's a bigger everything else the ocean so let's get back to reflecting on disturbing emotions so um The thing is, because they're so intense, and let's just talk about anger for a minute, because that's an easy, it's an easy identifiable. Because they're so intense, they feel real. It feels real. Not only that, it's like a match to a fire, like a combustion, like the reason you're angry and the uh, hotness of the anger and everything else gets combusted like immediately, there's no, it's just, there's no way to even enter. Someone in our group was, we've been studying the, um, lately, the uh, paramitas, and in the paramitas are the precepts. Excuse me. So one of them is, um, I think it's, uh, I should know this. (laughs) Do not be angry, actualize harmony. Oh, we've been talking about anger a little bit. And one of our group members shared a, a wonderful, I mean, it was short and simple, but she, she says, I have a temper. I know I have a temper. And I know I feel it when it, it just rises up in me, like this energy, and I get all hot, and it's just like... And I've learned to just breathe it in, breathe, 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 and then breathe out, let it go, let it go. So she's watching it as an energy in her body. She doesn't have to go with it anywhere. And boy, it feels like you wanna go somewhere with it because it's sometimes so intolerable. So that's one way of, in the midst of a disturbing emotion, to study, is to actually study the physical sensation. We know that our mind, our breath, and our body work together. We we should study all aspects while it's happening, not just the thoughts that are hooked onto this strong feeling. And you would be surprised, I I practiced um, what she taught today. I had a little fuel moment and it was like hooked onto some old stuff that's rattling around. And boy, it was like, and I was upset. And I just let it, let it, let it, let it, let it do. And you know what? It just went away. I mean, eventually it just, I didn't interfere with it. I just let myself feel the upset, feel the anger, feel the sensation of getting hot and whatever irritated. And underneath that, what's underneath that? Because these are just protective maneuvers. Anger especially is a protective uh, maneuver. Um, Some people get angry when they're startled or something unexpected happens and they were expecting something else, like we had an agenda. So we get, you know, maybe minorly angry, there's the minor angers, like the frustration, the irritation, the intolerance, those three things are pretty simmering in the back stove there. So what's underneath that? That's where real study starts to happen. Real study. Well, John Cha was always saying it's uncertain, it's unsure, and basically that's the truth. And we get angry when we feel threatened. And what's threatening us? Uncertainty about everything. Basically. Which is fear. Which is shame. That we feel angry. We shouldn't be angry. I'm trying to be a bodhisattva. Why am I so angry? We're disappointed. We're hurt. I don't want to go, you know, you can make your own list, really. (laughs) I think One of the myths that puts out the fire is sadness, feeling sad. That's underneath. And um, one reason we practice in sangha is to see some of our emotions and see our relationships and how we can be loving and kind and work with these things that arise naturally, because they do, but we're asked to um, really go deep and ask, ask ourselves about our assumptions about our relationships in the Sangha. And I'm using the word Sangha also for your family, your community, your friends. What, one small thing that happens often, um, we fall in love with the Dharma and we want to practice. And then all our entanglements arise because we don't leave them at home. And we have a disappointing relationship and we are justified. Ooh, I hate that word. It's so wrong. We're justified in our fury. Is that from outside? Is that outside the mind? I don't think so. We can go back to the calmness of to see things as they are, just basic bare level that helps calm. So when we get into this state, though, we need some help. Maybe you could ask for it. Perhaps you have someone like your teacher or sangha friend or advisor or you could ask for help. That's a way of turning towards the Dharma. And what may be offered to you might be different than what you really want. You don't want justified. (laughs) And remember, um, Maizumi said that the ancients are here, right here, as you're going through this, where you yourself become the text, the self-study. And in so doing, all the ancient Buddhas stand revealed as your very life right here, this time and place, and that's when you're upset. They're trying to show you the ocean when you're involved in this wave. (laughs) So can we take some comfort in that? It's impermanent, for goodness sakes. You're the one perpetuating it, oh my goodness. (laughs) If we we feel alone in this, and that, that can happen to us too, we can feel alone no one else is going through this. Oh my gosh. The drama is kind of fascinating. <laughs> Turn to a neighbor and and find someone to be compassionate for. If you can't do it for yourself. Many have known this difficulty. Whatever you, you know, you're feeling, many have known this difficulty. And then we can cultivate um, qualities, and um, Shugan Roshi was going to talk more about that, bodhisattva qualities. um, The paramitas, which are the wisdom practices, uh, are some of the qualities as antidotes. When we need them, when we need the Dharma, we can actually rely on that. So um, one of them is patience paramita. And um, Shantideva, uh, who wrote The Way of the Bodhisattva, and eighth, he's an eighth-century um, monastic from, I think, the land of it, I'm not sure. Um, he wrote The Way of the Bodhisattva, which includes uh, several chapters on the parami- different paramitas. And um, one thing I want to say about him, because I kind of identify a little, he, he was, uh, I think he was from, like, upper class or something. I don't identify with that. But, um, he, you know, he went to the monastery, and, and basically the monks in the community were, like, beefing on him because they said all he does is eat, sleep, and shit, and we wanted him to leave. <laughs> you know, they just wanted to eject him. He was just a, a ne'er-do-well, like a lazy guy. So they challenged him to give a, a talk. And he said, well, do you want something on the sutras, or should I do something original? I said, oh, original. And so he gave this talk called The Way of the Bodhisattva, and as he talked, and the last chapter is wisdom chapter, he levitated into the sky, never seen again. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. So the Dalai Lama wrote a fabulous book. I'll, I'll quote the title for you. Healing Anger, the Power of Patience. And it is um, a lot, well, it's, it's a commentary on this chapter on patience that Shantideva wrote. Um, I learned so much from that book. Study, study. So anyway, the Dalai Lama said um, on, on that, this as a practice, as an antidote to anger, to be sure, a lesser feeling is a place to begin to practice difficult emotions. So what I said before, irritation, frustration, intolerance, those are sort of a little lesser. Bring forth constant familiarity and determination. It is not that the practice itself has become easier, but rather one's attitude and one's mental state has become cl- closer to it. So he's saying <clears throat> excuse me bring forth constant familiarity and determination in other words don't run away from your 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 resistance your anger whatever just re- notice you know if it's if irritation's a good place to start really i think this we, we know we can feel a shiver in our body. We can. This person, ah, to irritate me, or they're annoying. Annoying. They're so annoying. Whatever it is, be be familiar that we're actually feeling this, because that's a place to like look at what is generating that. What is generating that? So is it you are you and them are them? That is. N- Where's the teaching of self and other are one? Where can you go with that? What about impermanence? What about compassion in that we don't know this person fully? We're just looking at a surface appearance. He says, um, it's not that the, e- the practice itself has become easier. So we're, we're um, learning to live with hardship, as I mentioned before learning to accept conditions that we can't change instead of reacting to them, but rather that one's attitude and one's mental state has become closer to it, more intimate, not so afraid. That is why the appearance of the phenomena has changed. We have such amazing minds that are changing perceptions all the time, so subtly, and... We're so suggestive, and that's what he's saying. Like, why the appearance of the phenomena of irritation changes is because we got closer to it. It's not because this person is less doing whatever it was that started something, whatever. Okay. So that's a direct, that's a result of contemplation and direct seeing. Contemplation of the thinking and the feeling and seeing through it, because you're not getting caught. It's seeing through it. We learn to bear the unbearable, more or less. And we have choices. Um, So I, I wanted to share the flavor of Shantideva. And this is in direct, this is a couple of verses Um, that the Dalai Lama, which I just read his commentary, was. He says, There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. Right? That's what the Dalai Lama said. There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So, through becoming acquainted with small harms, I should learn to patiently accept greater harms. Who has not seen this to be so? with trifling sufferings, such as the bites of snakes and insects, feelings of hunger and thirst, and with such minor things as rashes. I should not be impatient with heat and cold, wind and rain, sickness, bondage, and injury. For if I am, the harm they cause me will increase. The the harm they cause me will increase. Because it's his attitude and his perception that's getting closer. He could be speaking of um, snakes and uh, insect bites of his monastic cohorts. (laughs) The irritation there, because, you know, anyway. (laughs) So then we go back to Zazen, of course where Suzuki says, let everything go as it goes. So we have all these conditions we can't do anything about, and our reactions just let it go as it goes. And Ajahn Chah reminds us to hold these things gently, like the purity of the lotus in the muddy water together. Gently, completely hold them, like like our hands in... The mudra, what are we holding? What are we letting in and out? Another couple of things, and I'm I'm almost done, just to let you know. Um, We use the word humbly or humility, and that is really just in the face of that we don't really know very much. We think we do. but. (laughs) We don't know where this anger actually came from, per se. We know when it persists what, who who, what is doing that. Um, We can't know all the karmic streams that brought us to this moment. We can't know the person who's irritating us, their karmic streams, and what's appearing, where that's ended up. To be humble in the face of that, it's pretty humbling. So, um, but to gather your courage, gather your courage when you're feeling these things and they're strong. You don't need to actually completely believe that they're real. They might feel strong and overpowering in the moment, but they're never lasting and take comfort in all of that. Daido Roshi, I, I, I kind of invoked him a little bit because uh, Shugen Roshi was talking about trusting yourself, and that was a favorite refrain of Daito Roshi. And of course, I misheard that. <laughs> so if something could be repeated for like 30 years, <laughs> and you didn't hear it right first. 25 years, (laughs) trusting yourself. (laughs) It's not about believing anything, really. It's about being, just being. (laughs) And you don't have to trust a lot. You just take a step and trust that. Take this moment and this breath, trust that. That's trustable, that's faith in that. And everything in between is peaceful. Everything in between is peaceful. The teachings of the Song Sparrow this week, very peaceful. And appreciate your care and your love for this precious life. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.